because that's me. I'm an all or nothing person. And if there's one thing I've done in recovery, I've overdone my recovery, just like I did my drinking. And I don't want to find out how little recovery I need or how few meetings I need to pick up my next drink. I heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Alice, an alcoholic in Durham, North Carolina. Alice, it's a new month, it's a new year, and the new grapevines are here! Man, I'm excited. Alice, what's your history with the grapevine? You're now a grapevine rotating co-host. I know. I, I don't even know how that happened, right? Yeah. You know, Don, my relationship with the grapevine, it's really evolved slowly over the 36 years that I've been here. Of, of course, I always knew that there was a magazine. But, you know, here's something I don't know that you know. It was really seeing you at Ikipa in New Orleans that moved me. I was there and in the power of the grapevine, the genuine and democratic interest in the voices of our memberships, like you're there and you're getting people to come in and do these interviews. And Well, I wasn't there. Sam was there. <laughs> Sam was there. Well, Sam was there and man, Sam was beating the drum about getting people to come in and interview. Uh -huh. And I dragged in a newcomer because I'm like, this is the voice we need. We need the voices of newcomers. And while I was there, I was invited to interview and, and I did. And then at Ikipa in San Francisco, there you were again. Mm -hmm. But it was really Chris, our publisher, right? The voice of, right? The real face in some ways of AA Grapevine. And he announced the launch of the app, the AA Grapevine, Grapevine app. And it was really quite a stir at Ikipa in San Francisco. I mean, how cool. Then our amazing executive assistant, right? Najin contacted me about interviewing in I was late. Do you remember that I was late to my first interview? <laughs> well, we forgave you. <laughs> so here I am. Did you ever read the magazine early in surprise? Because I used to carry it with me when I was traveling, when I went out of town, you know, and the grapevine is considered to be our meeting in print. So, yes. you know, it's a, it has shares in it. And it's kind of like if you can't get to a meeting, reading the grapevine, you get a little AA in. Yeah. So there were Grapevine magazines out at the meetings that I was at, and I, I've read the Grapevine, but I, I didn't really come to appreciate what the Grapevine was until later in my sobriety. Yeah. And I think that now that it is a more multidimensional thing, right? We've got an app, we've got a podcast, we've got the printed version. It has really become, to me, a very powerful tool. And yeah. so I'm now all in with the grapevine, obviously. Yeah. Well, in the new issue of the grapevine this month, uh, January, the first thing is there's a map of all the regions in the U.S. and Canada and schedules for upcoming regional forums. Regional forums are where all members and groups are invited to meet and share with representatives from the General Service Board, the General Service Office, and the grapevine. You've heard AA described as an upside down triangle with our groups on top and the general service board on the bottom, Alice. Yeah, I've heard that. And I also know that the triangle is said to be the strongest structure known to man. Yeah. 
except at the regional sharing sessions, <laughs> because that's where the whole triangle collapses and everybody gets to talk to each other. It's a sharing session. <laughs> well, let's test that theory, right? <laughs> okay. So another great thing this month in the issue is the experiment, a step one story. The author writes, when I controlled my drinking, I did not enjoy it. And when I enjoyed my drinking, I couldn't control it. Man, isn't that our shared story? That's my story. <laughs> In Enter My Lonely Heart, a desperate alcoholic mother with a two-year-old on her lap says that the first prayer she ever uttered was, God, you better do something. Sometime later, after getting sober in AA, living a changed life, her simple Christmas Eve prayer was somewhat less demanding. It, I'm, it's a beautiful story where she, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to spoil the ending. Good job, Don. Listen, subscribe to the magazine today, family, or subscribe in the app. Both are easy and both are amazing resources. That's right. Well, Alice, who's our guest today? Don, we're in for a treat. Today's guest is Bill, known as Bill the Shirt. And he's the author of a piece on emotional sobriety in our January 2024 issue that came out today. I'm looking forward to it. Hey, Alice, how can I support the Grapevine podcast? Since The Grapevine is self-supporting, we don't sell ad space in our magazines, our website, or even the podcast. Grapevine doesn't even accept contributions from AA members. Wait, what? If you want to support this podcast, visit aagrapevine.org and click on store or subscribe in the new Grapevine app. Hi everyone, my name's Bill and I'm an alcoholic and my sobriety date is the 6th of October 97. I live in Bristol, UK and uh, my uh, name that I've seemed to have uh, acquired over the years is Bill the Shirt. And my home group is Hannam Hall and I've been a member of Hannam Hall for the 26 years I've been sober. You're known as Bill the Shirt. I can't help but remark for our listeners that you're wearing a very loud Hawaiian shirt sitting in front of Hawaiian wallpaper as well. So it's almost like you're naked. I don't know. Because you just blend in. <laughs> I don't know about the naked part, but this is what I know. <laughs> if I saw you at a meeting, I would absolutely call you Bill the Shirt. <laughs> well, Bill, I love it how we get nicknames in AA. That's a good one. <laughs> So tell me, how did you come to the place that you found AA? So my journey to AA is a very ordinary journey. My dad's an alcoholic and my granddad's an alcoholic. They were both very successful. And back in the 60s, my dad had a lot of antique shops in London. We used to have all the stars in. We used to, you know, people that you and I know from Hollywood used to come in. And my dad was very, a very good antique stealer, but he was also a drunk. There was 10 children, and I'm the only alcoholic. Hmm. And when 
times were bad, they were horrendous. When they were good, they were wonderful. And there was a lot of blood around. There was a lot of beatings. There was a lot of arguments. And today, my mum would probably be put in a refuge, but... This was in 1960, and she scarped in the middle of the night in our old furniture van and drove to Bristol, where her mother lived. I was eight years old, and I'll tell you this story because my brother was at Bristol University. He used to brew his own beer, and it was my job as a little boy to decant all the beer every year and put all the dregs in a couple of bottles what, is, what does that mean, decant the beer? When when you make your own beer, you have all the dregs at the bottom. Do you know what dregs are? Yeah, the sediments. The sediment. So it was my job to carefully pour out all the bottles, maybe three or 400 bottles of beer, and wow. put all the sediments in a couple of bottles and put those bottles of sediment in the bin. You know, it was in the hippie era. My mum used to dress us all up as Jimi Hendrix in 19... 19- <laughs> <laughs> my mum was the first hippie in bristol for the listeners i just want to give them a visual bill is a white guy from bristol in the uk and his mom and the, her 10 children are dressed up like the black famous guitarist Jimi hendrix the first hippies huh bill all the hippies were dressed up like <laughs> Jimi hendrix <laughs> and cars would physically stop in the middle of the high street and look at us and point at us and say, these are the hippies that are going to ruin the world. <laughs> and that's how I was brought up. And I was at this party. My brother's at Bristol University. And there was probably a couple of hundred students all out of their faces. On It was all magic mushrooms and this homemade beer. And I just wanted to be a part of things. And yes. I had a thought. Do you know what? I put a couple of bottles in the bin, so they're mine. So I fished them out of the bin. I took a drink. I ended up drinking the whole lot, and I partied all night, and it was my first drunk. At the end of the night, my mum came in. I was being sick. The room was going around, and she said, oh, my God, I've left your father, and now I've got another one. And that was my first drink, and I was eight years old. Goodness gracious. And what about your last drink? By this time, I was with... uh, the wife I'm with now. We've been together 21 years. We've got five children. We've got a big investment company. I drove a stretch Rolls Royce. We've got a lovely farm. My daughters did show jumping, but I wanted to die. And I remember my last drink. It was a Sunday night. We went down to the local pub in the village at the end of the lane. And I went to bed that night and I didn't know the next morning at nine o'clock, I was to phone Alcoholics Anonymous. And it would be the start of a 26-year journey. I woke up, literally got out of bed, and I said to my wife, I can't do this anymore. And she walked over as quietly as anything to the sideboard. She picked up a piece of paper and she said, give these people a ring. And I said, who's that? And they, she said, this is a number for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, well, who have you been talking to? And she said, I went to see them two years ago. And they said, there's absolutely nothing we can do for him until he's ready. And if he's ever ready, give him this number. But the person she saw that day, it was a lady. The lady said to her, make him responsible for the consequences of his actions. And for that last two years of my drinking, she would leave me in the yard. She would leave me on the staircase without any clothes on. The the children would climb over me going to school. She wouldn't pick up my clothes. She didn't do anything for me. She didn't lie for me. She 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 uh, didn't help me. 
And do you know what? If she hadn't have carried that out for two years, I can tell you that I would be dead today because I'm a real alcoholic that whilst there's one vestige of hope left, I'm not going to go for help. And I remember that morning because I woke up thinking she's the last person to look after me and now she's given up. And I knew I would be dead within six months or I had to go and sort myself out. And that's why I rang AA. That's my story as well. That's what my wife did. She got involved in Al-Anon two years or so before I quit drinking and quit paying any attention to me. Mm -hmm. And what it did, there was no one to blame. It just turned all the focus on me. It was my it was my drinking that was the problem. It, I couldn't blame it on her saying I need to quit or anything like that. Wow. And it's very powerful. And something inside of me and i know today is probably a spiritual awakening maybe but i knew that i didn't have much longer left you called aa what what, what happened it was nine o'clock i could take you through every minute of that morning because it still stands out in my mind as my life was to change but i rang up alcoholics anonymous and i don't know if you know in, in england we have a spiritual part of the community called Druids. And Druids are people who stand on top of mountains and hum and drum to the drum mm. their drums and hum to the world and live in teepees and they they wear horns and feathers and you know they have long cloaks and that they, they have their own spiritual journey. And the one of the head of the Druids These are real people. You're not talking about magical creatures. You're talking about people who are Druids. Yeah. And that they're, they're all over England, but they're based in Glastonbury in the West Countries, which is where I live. Would these people be thought of now as pagans? Yes, they would. One of the head of the pagans, if you call them that, he was a long term member of AA and he just happened to answer the phone. And I tell you that story because I'm a property developer and I've got nothing in common with people who live in teepees, people who hug trees and look into bits of glass and see the future. And I met this guy and he talked to me about his drinking and not about my drinking, just like Ben and Bob. And I knew in that hour that something had changed within me. I knew in that hour that I'd met the first person in my life who understood how I felt. And I was 41 years old. Mm -hmm. And I knew in that hour that I'd need never drink again. What did he ask you to do? I told him, I'll do anything to stop drinking, but don't ever ask me to be nice to my dad. And he said, Bill, everything that's happened to you in the last 25 years of drinking, all the hell's angels, the drinking, the drugs, the fighting, the girlfriends throwing you out, the resentments, the anger, the low self-worth, the suicide attempts, Everything that's happened to you in the last 25 years is a gift from your higher power. And those were his exact words that day, so that you could sit in front of me today. One less argument, one less fight, one less drink, one less resentment, you wouldn't have got down low enough this morning. And so when I see in Alcoholics Anonymous in the big book, it says nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. I know that everything that happened in the previous 25 years was meant to be. And the other thing he told me, he said, Bill, all your life you've worn a, a cloak and it's a cloak that's tailor made for you. It fits you very well. You feel comfortable. You feel safe. And it's a cloak of survival. And you, you've survived everything for 25 years. You should have been dead many times. 
but it's a cloak of alcoholism, it's a cloak of low self-worth, of resentments, of retaliation, of nobody likes me, and it's a cloak of just wanting to be wanted, needed and loved. And his exact words on the 6th of October 97 were these, I'm going to beg you please to take that cloak off and I'm going to offer you a new cloak. He said, this new cloak is not going to fit you very well. You'll probably feel pretty stupid. You'll feel ill at ease. You won't know how to cope. But it's a cloak of the 12-step recovery program. It's a cloak of spirituality. It's a cloak of love and tolerance and humility and patience. And I beg you, please, to try this cloak on. Wow. So he's just simply asking, that's another way, it's a beautiful way of asking you to try a different philosophy of life. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to feel right at first. Yeah, as it doesn't when people say, let go and let God. Right. So what are you talking about? It just mm-hmm. seems so strange. And I left that room and I was so excited. And it was just like someone gave me the key to a prison cell that I'd been in for 25 years. And they said, look, here's the key. You can go off and enjoy yourself now. And I remember that feeling. As I was so thin, I'd knocked out my teeth. Mm. And I went home and my wife said, what did those A&A people tell you? And I said, well, apparently, Geraldine, this druid bloke I met, he tells me I, he tells me I smell. I said, no. no. And she, yeah, you were going in there looking down on him. Yeah. And do you know what? He's told me I've got to have a shower. She said, I, yeah, well, I think it would be a good idea. So I had a shower. And she said, what else did those A&A people tell you? And I said, well, apparently I've got to have something to eat. So I had a bowl of cereal, but I bought it straight up because I couldn't keep any food down. And uh, she said, what else have those A&A people told you? And I said, well, I've told them that you've given up on me. You won't do anything for me. You know, my clothes are on the floor. And he said, you go upstairs now and pick up all your clothes off the floor. And I was picking up all my clothes off the floor, and I thought, how does he know my clothes are on the floor? (laughs) He's never been here. Well, if you're a real alcoholic of our type, it's either bedlam or everything's lined up perfectly, including your underwear, isn't it? And you know what? By 12 o'clock that day, I was drinking orange juice, I was taking sugar, I was having a wash, having having something to eat and tidying the house up. Yeah. And that was my first day of recovery, and I was doing my step one, although I didn't know it. Right. You know, we live in the delusion that if I have money, if I still have a house, if I have a car, you know, and you're in a situation with like, you know, you have a Rolls Royce, you have a beautiful home, you've, you know, you're well resourced, and you go and you meet the Druid, right? A pagan. And here's a guy who probably doesn't have a lot of material possessions, but he's bathed. And he's probably got a bed made. He's probably eating, right? When you look back on this, the profound nature of the discovery that the things on the outside don't matter nearly as much as we think they do. Unless you've just really told me my story because all my life, when I was eight years old, when I got drunk first, I knew I'd become a millionaire. That isn't boasting. I just knew I wanted to make money. And because of my dad's money he made and we didn't get anything and we were kept in poverty, I knew at eight years old that when I made a lot of money, I would have a lovely farm. I would give it to my children. And Ollis, I tell you what, on my 40th birthday, which was a year before I got to AA, 
I bought myself a Rolls Royce for my 40th in cash. And I sat in that Rolls Royce about six months later on a beautiful farm with a lovely wife, five children, and I knew it hadn't worked. And I'd surrounded myself with everything, everything you could want in the world, and I still wanted to kill myself. And met this druid. He took me right back to the beginning, and I had to start having a wash, eating properly. The basics, yeah. So what were meetings like when you first got sober? I'm curious, coming from North Carolina, what is AA like in in England? Well, I've been to a lot of AA in the States, and it's not a lot different, really. For me, I had to stop taking everybody else's inventory and look at me, because something we were told, that the one thing that would kill more alcoholics than anything else was this, that my case is different and you don't understand. And that's what nearly killed me in AA. I would walk in and think, you don't know what it's like to be me. Mm-hmm. I had to get over the fact that it, whether you're black or white, working, tall, rich, poor, good-looking, mm-hmm. we were all there, the same person. The shedding of the shell is how I think about it, right? I'm so busy worried about the shell, the shell that the soul is encased in, right? That I can't get to the soul. But when I learn to look past the body that you're encapsulated in, the social, economic, racial, political, ethnic, religious stuff that is physical, and I can begin to relate to you as a soul, then I really get to do the thing on page 77, right? I get to fit myself to be of maximum service. And it doesn't matter like the, the body you're in, but I, you've got to tell us the story about how you got to be Bill the Shirt. <laughs> yeah. Well, if there's one thing I've had all my life, I've had this crushing fear of what everybody thinks about me. I've had a crushing fear about what everybody doesn't think about me. Mm. I learned at a very early age to look into everybody's eyes and work out what they thought about me. And I can't ask them what they think about me because I can't deal with rejection. So from a four and five years old, I learned to take your infantry. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you didn't like me, you were in my filing cabinet marked, I will get you one day. Mm. Or do you know who I am? Or after all I've done for you? And what I've done all my life, if anybody upset me, I just wouldn't talk to them again. If I went to a pub and someone said something I didn't like, I wouldn't go there again. If I had friends and they upset me, I would walk out and I wouldn't go back again. And I did exactly the same in Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to pull up in my Rolls Royce. I used to walk around as if I owned the place, I was told. And if people laughed at my Rolls Royce, I think, well, I'm not going to that meeting again. And if I went to another meeting and they they went on and on and on and on and on too much, well, I'm not going there again. And I go to another meeting and if people were telling me some pretty home truths, I thought, I'm not going there again. Because if there are two things I've had all my life, it's sensitivity to criticism Mm-hmm. and the fear of public humiliation. And I have to phone my sponsor every day. And I was maybe six or eight months sober, I can't remember. And I said, I'm doing all right, but I went to that other meeting the other night, Aiden. I don't think they liked me at that meeting. They don't speak to me like they used to, or somebody laughed at my Rolls Royce, or somebody said this that upset me, so I'm not going back there again. And he said, listen, Bill, 
you're so sensitive to what the whole world thinks about you, which is really the alcoholic's biggest problem. I want you to go out tonight and buy two Hawaiian shirts. Well, I thought the Hawaiian shirts were for this druid bloke, my sponsor, and he's a big. <laughs> so we bought these triple extra large Hawaiian shirts, orange and turquoise, and they had palm leaves on that looked like dope. <laughs> I thought, that, that'll do. <laughs> I phoned him up quarter to seven in the morning and I said, Adrian, I've, I've got your Hawaiian shirts for you. And he said, they're not for me. And I said, but who might they be for then? And he said, they're for you. And I said, but Adrian, I'm a property developer. I wear a suit. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you've noticed, Adrian, it's the middle of winter and it's snowing. And he said, Bill, you are going to wear these Hawaiian shirts to every meeting you go to until you can get over this sensitivity to criticism of what everybody thinks about you. And from the next day, I had to wear those Hawaiian shirts to every meeting. And You did it? Yeah. And if you think it's painful to be harpooned in the foot, you want to wear a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt to a meeting. Yeah. And then the snow's coming down and everybody's saying, oh, here's sensitive Bill. Oh, we've got curtains like that at home, Bill. Oh, it's just like our wallpaper. And you know what? I wore those shirts for 300 meetings. I still do the meeting day. I wore them every day for nine months. Bill, that's an enormous amount of willingness to do this. I mean, and, and also tough love on your sponsor's part to come up with such a plan, but you were willing to do that even though you were like uh, judging people and all. Yeah. Did you struggle with that? Any lengths, right? I knew that if I left AA, that I could well and truly easily die. And I was willing to go to any lengths of victory over alcohol. And it was seriously painful. But you know what? I persevered. And every day people would laugh at me and make jokes. And one day, Big Chris, who's dead now, he was 52 years sober, laughed at me. I'm 42 years old. And that was the first time since I was that four-year-old who arrived in Bristol that anybody's ever laughed at me and it didn't hurt. And I'm on the phone to my sponsor after the meeting saying, Adrian, Big Chris laughed at me today. I'm 42 years old and it didn't hurt for the first time in my life. And he said, Bill... You can take those shirts off now. And I tell you that story because how we create change in AA, we change our actions over and over and over again, i.e. wearing these shirts, until such time our thinking changes. Yes. And you know what? I'm still willing to go to any lengths for victory over alcoholism because I know if I carry on changing my actions, like picking up my clothes off the floor, having a shower, suiting up and booting up for AA, tidying things up, putting things back where I found them, then eventually my thinking changes. So what is AA like for you today? It sounds like you're all involved. Do you still go to meetings? Yeah, I drove 200 miles to do a share today. I'm a member of Loners International, that's L-I-M, that's LIM. And I've been a member of Loners International for 20, probably 23, 24 years. And I'm a port contact. And Loners International was set up prior to the internet age, specifically for people who can't go to regular 
live meetings that we have. So when I travel the world, when I climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, there is a member of Loners International in the village of Kilimanjaro. So I looked him up. When I'm on the outback of Australia, maybe in cities, maybe people are disabled, maybe people just can't go to AA meetings for whatever reason, and we are their contact. And we send our shares in every four weeks. I think it's every eight weeks now. And they print maybe 30 or 40 shares in a magazine. Starts with the Serenity Prayer. We include our names and addresses. So we still use stamps and envelopes and pens. And so people still write to me from all over the world. So I do a lot of that. I do obviously do sponsoring. I do a lot of Step 3 and 11 workshops. I do... Something I've done, been doing for probably 20 years, which is a dream catcher step three and 11 workshop that I put together maybe 20 years ago, because recovery for me was about fulfilling my dreams. And so we make dream catchers and do that. And what is recovery about to, about for me today? No different than it was in the early days. So you, you're writing stories for Loners International and... You've got a story in the grapevine this month on emotional sobriety. Was that a story that you had written for, there it is, he's holding up the issue of the grapevine, the proud owner of a story in the grapevine magazine. Is that a story that you had sent to Loners International? It was a story I sent to Loners International, and we have our own magazine in the UK called The Share Magazine, and your, yours is called The Grapevine, and uh, they're different names. And I've always written shares because it's a spiritual way for me to get out. The story that I sent to The Grapevine was called Little Surrenders, and I was told in very early sobriety that being sober in AA and staying sober was just a series of lots of little surrenders. Mm. And I had to surrender self-will to resentment, to judgment, to anger, to what people think about me and do they like me and I'm going to get you. And I have to surrender my will all day long and pick up the will of my higher power. And that's what the share was to the uh, Grapevine magazine. You send quite a few stories into the magazine, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a little website that maybe I've got a, a thousand stories on. I probably write two a day, wow. but I do like writing the stories. And the share I wrote yesterday was called The Truth. I, You know, I'm, I'm a, an honest guy and I know right from wrong. I know black from white. I know what I should and shouldn't be doing. But I knew from a very early age, I developed my own sense of dishonesty because it was my coping mechanism. I didn't want to be dishonest, but I became a dishonest person. You know, and recovery is about finding that honesty again. Yeah, so the shares are just like, well, really, you're just writing down like something you would share in a meeting. Exactly. When I was new around and I'd sit in meetings and people would quote from the big book and use words that I didn't really understand much. I always thought, you know, if I stick around AA, I'm going to maybe share and talk and write things down in in words that newcomers can understand. But I know with my sponsees, I have to know they understand everything before we move on. I only have two guidelines in sponsorship. You can't do anything wrong. And the other one is that you try your best. And do you know what? I've had sponsees for 25 years. I've got so many, I don't even know how many I've got. But do you know what? To tell people off, to have a go at them, to berate them is not the way 
I do my sponsorship. It's about support. I, at the end of every telephone call I've ever made, I always say, well done for all you're doing today. Because if they all they've done is stayed sober, that's right. And do you know what? If they've picked up a drink, I say, well done, because you phoned me back up. Well done. Do you make your sponsees wear outrageous clothing? No, but they're always worried that I'm going to say, listen, I think you need to put a pineapple on your head and walk into a meet. <laughs> You're testing that willingness, man. Testing that willingness. Testing the willingness. <laughs> well, my sponsees, they've all done so well. I'm just so proud of what they do every day. If all that they do every day is don't pick up a drink and pick up the phone and have a chat, that's all I want them to do. You know, Bill, I want to say to you, well done for what you've done for your service in Alcoholic Anonymous, for this interview. You have really been a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening again. And when you phoned up last week and said that you hadn't pressed the record button, I said, yippee, because I get another hour. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell people that we didn't hit record. Please don't tell. <laughs> I want everyone to think that we do everything perfectly, and now it's out. We're not perfect. <laughs> Bill, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Grapevine is looking for CPC stories. What is CPC? Cooperation with the professional community. If you have provided doctors, therapists, clergy, lawyers, teachers, parole officers, and other professionals information about AA, then you have done CPC work. And we want your stories about how you got into that kind of service, what it's like, what you've learned, and how it's enhanced your sobriety. Alternatively, did a professional help you find your way to AA? That's the other side of CPC work. Or... Are you a professional who found out about AA from members doing CPC work? Stories can be from 300 words to 1,800 words in length. Please send your stories to aagrapevine.org backslash share. Stories are due by April 1st, 2024. What's an Alki's least favorite part of a baseball game? The bottom of the fifth. (laughs) 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 Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Search AA Grapevine in the App Store on your phone or find AA Grapevine on Instagram and YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, search online for Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. That was freaking amazing. (laughs) 